Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we continue on our journey down the management of of lung cancers. And specifically, we'll be talking about ongoing workup or additional testing that we should consider in our patients with newly diagnosed lung cancer. A lot of this is applicable to the metastatic setting, but there are important concepts to take away also because it affects how we treat patients after surgery if it's indicated, so in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, this is a really, really important episode because we're going to touch on a lot of key concepts that are emerging for neoadjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy, but currently as it stands really applies mainly to the metastatic setting. So I'm I'm really excited about this and really excited to science with Dan, which is always a good time. Hey, all right. Listeners, definitely let us know how this series is going so far for you. Feel free to connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, send us an email or leave a review on one of our podcast streaming platforms. So without further ado, we'll roll the show. Hey guys, how are we feeling today? Yeah, not too bad. You know, um, after a a little bit of a struggle uh, earlier this week, my internet service from provider that shall remain nameless uh, was finally reestablished. Several hours on the phone, a few visits to the store itself, and ultimately I just had to basically hack into my own router and set it up myself, which is probably what I should have done in the first place. Yeah, this sounds like a classic Dan Housewrath story. I mean, I remember you were telling me, you're like, dude, just get a proxy. And whenever you're on a flight, so I'm telling all the listeners to this now because I had no idea. What Dan Housewrath does is he gets a proxy, goes on a flight, and then steals all of the download speeds and upload speeds, whatever you want to call it, for the Wi-Fi and just watches Netflix. It's pretty incredible. So bottom line is get a proxy, you know, maybe we'll get a sponsorship out of this proxy people, you know, we're, we're, we're here. And, uh, you know, if you if, if you take nothing else away from this episode, just just take that away. Get get the, one of these proxies when you're on a flight. And if any of airlines are listening, I don't actually do that. Uh, I was just lying to my friends. With the amount that I fly, I hope people don't take that too seriously and, and take away all the Wi-Fi, because then what am I going to do for the duration of the flight? I guess join the party i guess maybe might be the only option you can read the newspaper like the peasant that you are (laughs) (laughs) i do have an accumulation of blood journals that i'm meaning to get to so maybe you're onto something dan so guys in in today's episode uh, we continue on our lung cancer series and specifically you know we've got a great show planned talking about ongoing workup that we need to do in our patients with with lung cancer so why don't I maybe just kick everything off, remind our listeners the most fundamental concept, right, is that we need to always understand the type of cancer that we're treating. So in today's episode, the workup that we're going to be speaking about is based on non-small cell lung cancer histology. So that is the adenocarcinomas and the squamous cell carcinomas. There is some emerging data that some of this maybe one day will be applicable in small cell, but at this day and age, this is mainly for non-small cell lung cancer. So um, again, that's your adenocarcinoma, which just to remind our listeners on IHC is going to be your TTF1 positive, NAPSIN A positive, and CK7 positive histology. 
And this is in contrast to squamous cell, which the IHC is going to be consistent with P63 positivity, and you're also going to see those cytokeratin pearls. So aside from this important histology that helps us establish essentially what type of cancer we're treating, what are some other important tests that you guys think of? So I, I want to start off by clarifying something for our listeners that we're really going to discuss more in our next episode as we talk about treatment for lung cancer more and more in specific detail. And that's that the chemotherapy used for adenocarcinoma is different than the chemotherapy used for squamous cell carcinoma. And that's why we make that distinction between the two. We have many studies showing this difference and these cancers act differently. And Dan did a great job of explaining that, you know, smokers are more likely to get squamous cell carcinoma because the heat causing that squamous cell metaplasia followed by neoplasia. So it's just a different tumor genesis between adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And there's just very different biologies to these cancers, which is part of the reason why they respond to different types of chemotherapy. For today, I want to start off by framing us with a case. So let's say that we had a patient and they came into us and they came into us with a pathologic fracture of their femur and they got imaging and they got a surgery and they got a biopsy and it showed that they have a four centimeter right middle lobe lung mass mediastinal lymph node positivity, as well as metastatic disease to several bones and metastatic disease to the right adrenal gland. And then we get a biopsy of one of these metastatic sites. And let's talk about the important information that we need to glean from that biopsy that will, in some ways, apply to our adjuvant workup. And we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about these nuances. So Dan, let's take this metastatic case and say that we got a biopsy of one of these lesions. What kind of testing do you think of doing right off the bat? So after we get that biopsy, uh, you know, in addition to the IHC markers or immunohistochemistry markers that help us determine uh, the histology type or histologic type, like adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, we can use that same technology of IHC to look for something called PDL1 overexpression. And PDL1 is a molecule that tumor cells can express that helps them disguise themselves from the immune system and particularly protects them from T-cell mediated immune destruction. I, I kind of think of it almost like a fake mustache. The tumor cells are putting on this little disguise and are able to hide themselves from being destroyed by the immune system. And nowadays we have drugs that can target that overexpression and sort of unmask the tumors and allow the t immune system to come and attack these tumor cells, these abnormal cells. With non-small cell carcinoma, we also like to do molecular testing. And molecular testing is sort of a, a weird term because all of this stuff seems to involve molecular biology. But specifically what we're talking about is getting genetic information from your tissue sample. And it's important to understand that in order to get good genetic information, we need to get sample ideally from soft tissue. If we're taking a, a sample of a bone lesion, oftentimes the decalcification process can disrupt or destroy the DNA to the extent that it's difficult to get any meaningful information about mutations. In lung cancer in particular, this molecular testing is important because there have been several driver mutations identified. That's to say, there are mutations that are so important for the cancer's biology that if we target them with an inhibitory drug, we can substantially decrease tumor bulk or stop the tumor from growing. This has been a, a pretty big revolution in how we treat metastatic lung cancers when we do find one of these driver mutations. 
sort of the prototypical one that we think of for, for lung cancer um, is the EGFR mutation or the epithelial growth factor receptor mutation. There, we have a, a variety of drugs that we can use to target it. And that particular mutation is demonstrative of another concept. When we get this molecular testing or these genetic testing results, it doesn't only tell us whether or not a mutation is present. It tells us something about that sequence of the mutation. So we can, we can tell based on the particular version of a driver mutation that's in the patient's tumor, whether or not it will respond to our available therapies. Dan, that was a great overview of the testing that we need to do for a patient who comes in with metastatic disease. I just want to recap that just, you know, one of the keys to our shows is repetition and repetition is always important. So the first thing that Dan said is we need to look at the IHC. Not only is that going to tell us, is this adenocarcinoma or is this squamous cell carcinoma, which dictates what type of chemotherapy you give. You're also looking to, to look at this pdl one and PDL1, like Dan said, is a basically a way that the tumors have a fake mustache or another way to think about this in a, in a more biological sense. If we want to think about it this way, it's a, it's like a stop break that, that if an immune cell comes in and tries to kill the cancer, if it interacts with this PDL1, which is hanging out on the surface of the tumor cell, the immune cell will say, Hey, I'm not going to kill that thing. I'm going to shut myself down. That, that must be a friend is, is what the idea is here. So it, it's a way that the tumor can evade the immune system. When we see this reported out on an IHC, and remember everybody, IHC is literally just staining for protein expression. It's that you've got a biopsy and you're saying, does it stain for protein expression? And that's how we get these things like TTF1 and PDL1. Well, if you got a biopsy specimen and stained it for PDL1, what we can find is that if there is a high number of tumor cells expressing PDL1, compared to the total number of background cells, then the patient is more likely to respond to immunotherapy. And in some ways, we can honestly just skip the chemotherapy and just give immunotherapy if they have a high enough pdl one expression. Because the idea here is that all of these tumor cells are primed to be killed by your immune system. They just all have fake mustaches on. So you have to rip off the fake mustaches by giving them immune therapy. And that's not always the case. Sometimes these tumor cells found a different way to evade the immune system and we don't have a way to rip their mustache off. But this is a way we can target it. And the higher the expression of this, the better off we're going to be. So sometimes you'll see a percentage called a TPS score or a CPS score. And what that's telling you is it's the proportion of positive pdl one tumor cells over the total number of background cells. And that gives you your tumor proportion score. If you're looking for the composite proportion score, that includes the pdl one positive tumor cells plus the pdl one positive immune cells over the total number of cells. So as you could imagine, the CPS score will always be higher than the TPS score because you're also including immune cells that are PDL1 positive. It's not that one is better than the other, but many of the trials that you'll see in lung cancer used the TPS score. And this is true in solid tumor oncology. And it's very important to understand this concept that IHC is staining for protein expression. The protein expression that is allowing these tumor cells to evade the immune system and survive is PDL1. And that's why the higher the amount of PDL1, we believe the 
better response to treatment that this patient's going to have to immune therapy. And this has panned out in studies, which we'll talk about in, in the next set of episodes. And you know, listeners, it's important for us to also keep in mind that there's a difference in terms of prognostic versus predictive biomarkers when we are looking for these sorts of things. So specifically what I mean by that is a prognostic biomarker or, or something that can help with prognosis is mutations or changes that we find on, on these workups that are going to give us information about the cancer's overall outcome regardless of therapy, right? So that tells us how the patient is going to do. This is in contrast to a predictive biomarker, something like pdl one status, for instance, which gives us just information about how this cancer is going to respond to a particular drug. It's how it responds in a particular therapeutic intervention. And so as we're seeing more and more, it's important to be conscious of the terminology that we use. A lot of these, this testing may be predictive, as in how well the person will respond. Not all of it can be uh, extrapolated to be prognostic. And that's such an important point, Rodak. And, and I want to circle back on the other thing that Dan said, which was get this molecular testing. Remember, everybody, that molecular testing is looking for a gene mutation. It's PCR-based testing. And we talked about this in our first set of episodes of this podcast. And it's t titled heme path, but it really applies to solid tumor pathology as well. So I highly recommend all of our listeners go back to those first four episodes and listen to them because we talk about the details of molecular testing. And when we're looking at molecular testing in lung cancer, it's so important because Dan mentioned an EGFR mutation, but there are so many different driver mutations that we have discovered in non-small cell lung cancer, ALK mutations, ROS mutations, MET mutations. And even within each of these mutations, he, Dan talked about the sequence is important. It's a very different mutation if you have an EGFR exon 19 deletion, for example, versus a different point, point mutation EGFR. Not all mutations are created equal, and not all mutations will respond to the same therapy and have the same predictive idea that Ronick was talking about. So we think that molecular testing is predictive to targeted treatment. However, it depends on which type of mutation you had, which point mutation occurred. And, and that's why the sequencing is so important. And that's where things get very, very complicated as we run these large panels of molecular testing. Dan, one of the other things that, were, that will come up as we talk further in, in our next couple of episodes is the idea of cell-free tumor DNA. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. You know, we talked about how uh, we really prefer soft tissue samples for, for our molecular testing. And, uh, but you can imagine the situation where you just have a bunch of bone lesions. Uh, somebody really only has, uh, like, say, a metastatic recurrence that's only in their skeleton after their primary tumor is removed. In that case, one thing you may want to try and do is uh, what we would call a liquid biopsy or simply taking a blood sample and then combing through that blood very carefully for DNA that's just floating around in the bloodstream. And, you know, cancer cells are highly abnormal, as we, as we know. They break down, they necrose, they open up and release their, their contents much more readily than normal, healthy cells. And as a result, we found that patients with cancer tend to have very high levels relative to the general population of circulating cell-free DNA. And the subset of that cell-free DNA that's coming from the tumor cells, 
we call circulating tumor DNA or ctDNA. Because we now have such powerful computers and can scan through tons of different fragments of DNA and align them and try and figure out what kind of cells they may have come from, we're able to use these little fragments of DNA to assess for these driver mutations that we can target with our drugs. And so um, cell-free DNA, circulating tumor DNA, and our ability to sequence it is a really powerful tool in the treatment of these cancers. That's a that's a great reminder. And, and you know, depending on your institution, listeners, you, the practice may change. You know, some places that have access to both molecular testing and cell-free DNA testing, you may see attendings kind of sending both of them in, in, in parallel with the hope that, you know, if one of them is negative, maybe we can get some information. But but in general, you know, as, as we're alluding to, cell-free DNA is you truly just trying to find uh, a diamond in the rough, like a, a needle in the haystack, right? We're, and, and we're hoping that we're going to be able to find something. If you're able to do the more, what I'm going to call traditional molecular testing, that's always going to be more likely to re- yield a, a actionable mutation. And that's incredibly important. And and the other thing that I think Dan described to me one time is that this idea of circulating tumor DNA or cell-free tumor DNA is like space junk that, you know, within space, you have these this space junk floating around. And it's hard to find that space junk. But with this computational modeling, you can find that space junk, right? That these cells are just these tumor cells are rapidly dividing and busting open and you find the junk inside of them and you're going to find a higher proportion of that junk when you do this computational modeling. And that's how we know if this patient likely has this set of driver mutations. In the same way, we're starting to develop techniques on ways to monitor for possibly early relapse. And that's the same thing that we're talking about when you hear about CT DNA testing or circulating tumor DNA testing to see if there's any tiny, tiny, tiny amount of residual disease left over in these patients. We're working on validating it. We're working on figuring out how to use this information. But it's important for our listeners to know that we're not there yet. It's it's a research tool, and we're not there yet to use in the commercial setting. And as we learn more and more and more about this, it's important to focus on the details of these trials and not to just do things to do them as, as cancer becomes more and more complicated. And, you know, that's an important point that you mentioned. A lot of this is still under study. And cells breaking open because they're abnormal and are frequently dying and dividing is definitely the most obvious way that this DNA can get released and and it probably accounts for the majority of circulating tumor DNA. But there are still other mechanisms under study by which cells might secrete DNA and and release it into the bloodstream. So stay tuned. This uh, this is an active research space. And the last thing I wanted to mention is we keep on talking about this driver mutation concept. Well, tumors evolve, right? You, You develop a set of mutations and as you put pressure on these cells, they can evolve and, and a subclone of this of these cells that don't have that driver mutation or may have developed a resistance mutation may be a reason why your targeted therapy isn't working anymore. So we talked about how these mutations can be predictive to response to therapy. And at some point, it's common that these tumors develop resistance to these targeted therapies that we're giving. And that's why when we repeat biopsies on these patients, it's always important to 
run that molecular testing to see, did this patient develop a resistance mutation? We see this in malignant hematology, and we also see this in solid tumor oncology, and particularly in lung cancer. And, and EGFR is the prototype for that that we found out in some of the earlier studies, which we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. So guys, I think I just want to round out this discussion just to summarize everything that we talked about today. So I think the first and foremost, when we're talking about our next steps in terms, in terms of treatment is understanding what the true histology of what we're treating is. And so specifically, our conversations today revolved around the treatment of non-small cell lung cancers, that is adenocarcinoma and squamous cell. And we identify the etiology of this based on our IHC staining. Another important IHC staining modality that we tend to use in our in our workup is the PDL1 level uh, or PDL1 status rather. And as you all said, which I love, is the idea of the mustache and the cells kind of putting on this mustache. And so if we can quantify how much of that is present, we can use agents that target PDL1 to then target our cancer cells. In addition, kind of going hand in hand is also this idea, especially in the metastatic setting, that we should be thinking about considering molecular testing. And molecular testing allows us to identify additional mutations that may be present expressed by the tumor microenvironment that may provide us uh, drugs that are actionable against that mutation and can help us in the treatment of cancer. And then, you know, it's so cool to kind of hear about this evolving field of cell-free DNA, both kind of used in conjunction with molecular testing to find, you know, that space junk, as Vivek called it, or, or these secretions from dying cancer cells to help us also try to characterize what some of these mutations may be. And who knows, listener, maybe in the near future, this may also be important for us to be able to say if someone's cancer has recurred. So exciting times in the field of lung cancer. That, that was an awesome recap, Renick. And, and every, you know, listeners, I think it's important also to remember that predictive versus prognostic, that predictive means response to treatment. Prognostic is looking at the trajectory of the cancer and survival as a whole. Any final comments, guys? No, I think that was a great discussion. Just uh, remember to hit us up on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear about. We look forward to hearing from you. Absolutely. And please, please, if you if you can, rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us. It really helps other people see this podcast. And if you like our podcast, we we really, really love our listeners and love hearing from them. But it really helps us reach more people uh, if, if you could give us feedback and, and rate their podcasts on things like Apple Podcasts. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.